Well, in 1789, Ulada Equiano published an autobiography of his time spent in slavery in the Americas in England. And I wanted to just read a short section where he describes briefly uh, being reunited with his sister. He writes, In the manner I had been traveling for a considerable time, when one evening, to my great surprise, whom should I see brought to the house where I was but my dear sister? As soon as she saw me, she gave a loud shriek and ran into my arms. I was quite overpowered. Neither of us could speak, but for a considerable time clung to each other in mutual embraces, unable to do anything but weep. Our meeting affected all who saw us, and indeed I must acknowledge, in honor of those able destroyers of human rights, that I never met with any ill treatment, or saw any offer to their slaves except tying them when necessary to keep them from running away. When these people knew we were brother and sister, they indulged us together, and the man, to whom I supposed we belonged, lay with us, he in the middle, while she and I held one another by the hands across his breast all night. And thus for a while we forgot our misfortunes and the joy of being together. But even this small comfort was soon to have an end, for scarcely had the fatal morning appeared when she was again torn from me forever." I was now more miserable, if possible, than before. The small relief which her presence gave me from pain was gone, and the wretchedness of my situation was redoubled by my anxiety after her fate, and my apprehensions lest her sufferings should be greater than mine, when I could not be with her to alleviate them. Yes, thou dear partner of all my childish sports, thou sharer of my joys and sorrows, happy should I have ever esteemed myself to encounter every misery for you, and to procure your freedom by the sacrifice of my own. Though you were early forced from my arms, your image has always been riveted in my heart, from which neither time nor fortune have been able to remove it, so that, while the thoughts of your sufferings have dampened my prosperity, they've mingled with adversity and increased its bitterness. To that heaven which protects the weak from the strong, I commit the care of your innocence and virtues, if they have not already received their full reward. And if your youth and delicacy have not long since fallen victims to the violence of the African trader, the pestilential stench of the guinea ship, the seasoning in the European colonies, or the lash and lust of a brutal and unrelenting overseer. Um, there are countless stories that have been and should have been told about the lives of slaves throughout the early American history. Um, each one tragic in its own excruciating detail. Um, and in light of our particular history um, as Christians in America, uh, a question presses down on us. Is the gospel good news for the enslaved? Um, with our history as Christians in America, it begs this question, is the gospel good news for the enslaved? Um, we, we, start, we start by turning to the book of Philemon, which you've heard read, uh, portions of it. Uh, it's one of the New Testament letters, which is a personal letter written from Paul to this man, Philemon. And the situation was that, that Philemon was an influential Christian from Colossae. Uh, he was a leader in the church there. Philemon was also a slave owner um, who had one particular slave named Onesimus. And, and the details are vague here, 
but it seems as though Onesimus and Philemon had fallen into some kind of a disagreement, uh, some kind of conflict, and Onesimus came to find Paul to ask for help. So Paul then is writing this letter to Philemon, noting that Paul had led Onesimus to faith in Jesus and was now sending him back to his master, Philemon, to be received back as a brother in Christ. Um, so we'll stop there and just note that a passage like this is, is often used as a gotcha text of sorts for discrediting the Bible, um, as, as fundamentally oppressive, as retrograde, as a tool of white man's religion, as the opiate of the people, or, or whatever else. Um, and, and this passage is, is a key example of how in never giving a direct statement of law that forbids any and every form of slavery or servitude, the Bible can leave us uncomfortable and uncertain. And, and frankly, for me as an, as an individual, um, this has been a big apologetic hurdle for me to kind of grapple with various times over my Christian life. Um, it's, it's come back time and time again, and it has been, it, as it has been for most Christians who, who've kind of like taken the time to, to lean into this question and not just kind of skirt over it. It's hard. Um, in his book, Reading While Black, Esau McCulley quotes the black pastor and abolitionist James W.C. Pennington, um, who expressed this theological anxiety this way. Um, he, he said, Pennington said, Does the Bible condemn slavery without any regard to circumstances or not? I, for one, desire to know. My repentance, my faith, my hope, my love, my perseverance, all, all, I conceal it not, I repeat it, all turn upon this point. If I am deceived here, if the word of God does sanction slavery, I want another book, another repentance, another faith, and another hope. And then Macaulay uh, comments on this. And Macaulay says, The question for Pennington was not whether this verse or that verse condoned slavery. His questions revolve around the character of God. If the Bible supported the kidnapping of black bodies, the rape of black men and women, the separation of families, the whip and the chain then he needed another book altogether. He needed another faith and another hope. In a sense, the question behind all questions for the black Christians is this one. Did God intend our freedom? I think he puts that really well. And this question, man, it is emotionally powerfully loaded. Uh, even for someone like me, who, who, who shudders at the thought of the horrors of American slavery and the likelihood that my ancestors uh, were part of enacting and perpetuating and being complicit with those horrors. Um, how much more so is this the case for my black brothers and sisters whose ancestors were the victims or for whom the effects are still being experienced today? So the question of slavery, it's one we have to take head on if we're going to grapple honestly with the question of race in our context. And, you know, the discussion of slavery has not at every time and in every context um, been intermingled with a discussion of race. But in America and in the American church, it absolutely has been and, and, it, and it is intermingled. But, it, you know, certainly not in the ancient world. Those, those were separate issues for us. They're inextricably connected because of our history. Um, 
So we've got to talk about it. That's the point of today. And so, uh, But to understand what Paul and the Spirit of God are up to in this letter of Philemon, we have to first locate these verses in their historical context. So um, your, your mileage may vary on how interesting this is to you. I know that it's, it's drastically important for understanding this. So I hope that's enough to make it interesting. But we have to look at the nature of slavery in the ancient world. And I want to do three angles here. We'll try to do them quickly. The first is, what was slavery like in the general ancient Near East, the world and time of the Hebrew Bible? Second, what was slavery like in Israel as the people of God, as they were given law from God? How did slavery function there? And then third, what was slavery like in the Greek and Roman cultures out of which the New Testament came? So we'll take each in turn. First of all, general slavery in the ancient Near East. Well, slavery was a cornerstone of the economic landscape. And, and it could be absolutely brutal uh, then and there. Um, a few things of note. Number one, slaves had few days off, if any. Um, they were typically excluded from religious participation. They usually had, uh, there was usually no legal requirement to ever release slaves. So it was perpetual, unending. Um, generally, there were no laws against the physical or sexual abuse of slaves or even their torture. Um, generally, the trade was often built on stealing or kidnapping. Uh, the harsh treatment of runaway slaves was really common. If a slave ran away, a bounty would usually be issued, and then the slave would be sought out, captured, brought back, and then executed. Um, slaves were typically viewed as subhuman property over whom their owner's rights were total and absolute. Um, so it's not a pretty picture um, out of that world, we move to Israel specifically. So in contrast, remember that when God established the nation of Israel, um, he did so by rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. This was the identity forming moment for the nation of Israel, for them going from just a people group into a nation with a national identity. And so this, this exodus from slavery to liberation, it immediately began to shape their identity and their practices as it related to the institution of slavery. But the first unsavory thing we have to note here is that Israel was permitted in their law, in the Torah, in the scriptures, to practice slavery. Um, and frankly, there are aspects of Israel's practice of slavery that are very challenging and difficult to reconcile um, as we study them. And so uh, I just want to note, like in the short sermon, we obviously can't dive deep into every angle and issue we might want to. But in the newsletter, I have included some more resources that if you want to take this deep dive, things I've found really helpful. Um, so uh, make sure uh, you, you, you check it out there. Just know that I, I don't mean to be flippant or to gloss over this too quickly. It's just a function of the time that we have. Um, but that said, the challenging things said... Um, nonetheless, Israel's law relative to the surrounding nations required a radically humane, generous treatment of their servants or slaves. And so here are a few ways in which uh, Israel was utterly unique compared to the surrounding nations. One, slaves were explicitly noted as fully human image bearers of God. We see that in Job 31. They were not regarded as subhuman, mere pieces of property, but image bearers. That's huge. Number two, 
man-stealing or kidnapping was forbidden and punishable by death. Kidnapping or man-stealing was forbidden, punishable by death. In Exodus 21, we see that. Third, Hebrew slaves were required to be given their freedom and financial assistance when they were set free every seven years without exception for the Hebrews. Um, unless they preferred to stay on and work, which they often did in the case of wanting to save with their families or they just liked, <laughs> liked the economic relationship. Uh, they didn't have to be given freedom and set free, but if they wanted it every seven years, they must be given it. Um, Number four, slaves were guaranteed physical protections. For example, if an owner maimed a slave, uh, the slave was to be freed. Or if an owner killed a slave, the slave was to be avenged. We see that in Exodus 21 as well. Um, fifth, runaway slaves were to be given asylum and protection, not returned to their masters. So I think the logic here was that if a slave ran away from, from his master, his or her master, um, they had to be given asylum and protection. The, the logic, I think, being that it's assumed that they were fleeing a very abusive and inhumane situation, and so they were not to be sent back to it. Um, Deuteronomy 23. Sixth, if Israel were to fulfill its purpose in seeing the nations come to worship God and adopt his laws, then the institution of forced slavery would have effectively been ended across the ancient world. That's really interesting and powerful to note. And so together, all of these points, they, they, they don't, I want to be very clear, they don't answer all of our questions and our discomforts, uh, not by a long shot, but they do help us see the heart of God in shaping a people toward an ideal that had been lost post-Eden and that would be reinstated in the age to come. It's really important to note that before the fall, there's no slavery uh, it's fully a function of, of sin and the fallen condition. And in the age to come, there's no slavery. Um, but it's something that is being dealt with and mitigated right now. And so um, for all these reasons, many biblical scholars, they argue that we, we should probably stick with more literal translations of the Hebrew word abed, like bond servant or bonded worker, to keep our minds from filling in the norms we associate with the savage and inhumane American slavery. Often when we read about slavery in the Old Testament, we in Israel, we import what we know of American chattel slavery. Um, and it seems very, very different. As a side note, I just want to state this. We do really well to remember that our chronological snobbery, to use the term C.S. Lewis coined, or, or our sense of superiority over the moral vision of ancient people or the Bible is often pretty unfounded. Like the Americans and English of the 16, 17, 1800s, they adopted a radically more oppressive view of slaves and of black Africans in particular than the Israelites of antiquity. I hope you hear that and see that. Um, and, I, and, and there are probably many issues and, and people groups, I think particularly of the unborn and of the immigrant in particular, uh, where we fool ourselves into thinking we have a more humane view a more progressive view, a more advanced view um, than the Bible or, or even these ancient folks. Um, we just have to be careful about that. And I think it's really important to point that out. But that aside, in the end, um, Israel's bond service or slavery laws 
are probably best thought of as a sin restraining provision, still far from God's ideal. And remember, it's not that God is commanding them to practice this, but he's limiting it, limiting its damage, limiting its harm. Uh, It's possibly very similar to how Jesus characterizes Israel's divorce laws in Matthew 19, where he says, well, if you want to talk about Moses and divorce laws, that was just given to you because of your hardness of heart. But if you want the ideal, go look at Genesis 1 and 2 and the lifelong commitment that marriage is supposed to be. Divorce was never part of God's plan. I think the same can be said for slavery. Um, Okay, that's number two, Israel. Number three, slavery in the Greek and Roman culture, the time of the New Testament. So first of all, I'll just note there are clear evils once again. Like F.F. Bruce notes, for Greek and Romans alike, a slave in law was not a person, but a piece of property. Um, Aristotle could define a slave as, quote, a living tool as a tool is an inanimate slave, which is a horrifying sentence. Um, The slavery of the Roman Empire was not influenced by the humane advancements of Israel at all. Um, And and, and to be fair, it allowed for a wide range of treatment of slaves um, that was up to basically the master's discretion. So many slaves were treated like as part of the family, treated very well. They were probably very content, happy that they had entered into the agreement. Uh, But many others were treated horrifically, horrifically um, in all the ways we described before even. And so much of what could be said about non-Israelite slavery above could be said about slavery in the Roman Empire. But there are some complicated factors, too, that we have to take into consideration when we think about this. Like uh, commentator Douglas Moo argues that freedom or liberation was not in the first century the obvious good that it is for us in the modern world. So while many people in the ancient world became slaves by force through war, for example, Many others voluntarily sold themselves into slavery. In many cases, um, freed slaves would have had an incredibly hard time making a living um, and might prefer to extend their time as slaves or as servants. That's just important to note. Number two, um, the Christians at the time of the New Testament were a minority religious group with absolutely zero political power to influence the governmental policies of like the Roman emperor. Um, Remember what kind of government system they were operating in. We can't import life uh, like in our democratic republic where we get to influence policy through elected officials um, into the, the, the life that the early Christians were living. The thought of challenging the institution of slavery throughout the Roman empire would probably have never occurred to anyone, frankly. Um, instead, the Christians focused on building a countercultural church community that would live out the distinct values of King Jesus and his kingdom as we wait for it to come in full. It's important to note. Okay, there is the 30,000 foot view of slavery in the ancient world. Much more could be said, but we'll have to pause there for now. With all that in mind, we come back to Philemon in the New Testament. So remember, what is Paul after in this letter? What Paul is asking of Philemon is to receive his slave Onesimus back, quote, no longer as a bondservant or slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. And he goes on to say, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. The apostle Paul says, receive him, the slave, as you would receive me, the apostle. 
And in these sentences, the heart of Paul's appeal in this letter, Paul's given us a super powerful example, I think, of, of, of the practical reality of the theological truths he spelled out elsewhere in the New Testament. So I want to look at two other verses in the New Testament that I think this, this part of Philemon is putting into practice. The first is Galatians 3, 28 through 29. This has already come up multiple times in this series. I want it to come up again, probably will again. Um, but there uh, it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. One of the points of this passage, one of the implications is that in here, in the church community, things don't work like they do out there. Um, In Christ, he's saying there is no earthly hierarchy. And he gives us three examples. There's no ethnic difference. There's no economic or power difference. And there is no physical or sexual difference, male, female, that makes one iota of difference for receiving full welcome into the promises of God, a full place in his family, and a full experience of salvation. And that is drastically countercultural in a day of strict hierarchies like theirs was. Um. So we want to look at a second verse. So Paul talks about the effect of this equalizing in the master-slave relationship specifically in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. So let me read that. There Paul says, bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So first, he challenges the servants to apply the fullness of the neighbor love they've been called into in their relationship with Christ into their master employer relationship. So everything that the Bible teaches about how you treat others and how you treat uh, the neighbor, how you treat the brother was to be imported into their slave to master relationship. So that is for us controversial, very controversial because we're like, what the heck? This is like, Isn't this perpetuating all the injustices of slavery and so forth? For them, that would not have been the controversial part. The next part uh, is less controversial for us, more controversial for them. It says, more scandalously to them, he challenges masters to, quote, do the same to them, to the slaves, which would have been totally unheard of in the ancient world. Masters who would have been culturally conditioned to view their authority over their servants as absolute. Paul says if they are to live faithfully as Christians, if they are to practice Christian integrity in these relationships, they have to bring the fullness 
of all these commands about neighbor love and brother love that they've been called into, into their relationship with their slaves and servants. That is scandalous in this context. Um, and in this kind of relationship, the outward master bond servant relationship might remain. And if, again, it might even be preferred by the slave or servant, but the nature of it has been changed forever. Everything about the institution of slavery would have to be re-evaluated then and changed to the point where it begs the question if, if whether it should even be named something else at this point. And so with all that in mind, that theological groundwork laid, let's go back to Paul. When Paul says, receive Onesimus back, quote, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother, later he says, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Do you see it now? This is not Paul callously sending a runaway slave back to his harsh master. Everything has changed in their relationship. This is now a story of reconciliation between two equal brothers in Christ. And then he goes on with this enigmatic, well, actually before this enigmatic statement in verse 16, at the end of verse 16, he says that this is to happen both in the flesh and in the Lord. And here we get a hint that Paul doesn't just want this new relationship as brothers to be exclusively a spiritual abstract matter, but one that flows out into the practical reality of their economic relationship. It's not just in the Lord, but it's also in the flesh. Well, what does he mean by that? It's kind of perplexing because he doesn't explain. But there's one other hint in verse 21. Paul says, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Here's another hint that there is some other expected dimension to what Paul is asking beyond even the truly radical understanding that they're now brothers and to treat Onesimus as a brother and not just as a slave. Taken together, it seems really likely that Paul is subtly urging Philemon to move towards the logical conclusion of their new relationship in Christ, to free his slave, to set Onesimus free. If he wants it, to set him free. Do you see it now? Do you see it now? That is the, frankly, radical contribution that the book of Philemon makes to the subject of slavery in the scriptures and a trajectory that is established that uh, the church was to live into in the decades and years and centuries to come. Um, in conclusion, um, I have four points here to wrap up. Number one, I hope you're convinced that the heart of God and the logic of the gospel naturally leads to the end of slavery. Um, Philemon is a powerful culminating example of the logic of the gospel, ending slavery from the inside. Or I like the way F.F. Bruce, the commentator, puts it. He says, what the letter to Philemon does is bring the institution into an atmosphere where it could only wilt and die. Where master and slave were united in affection as brothers in Christ, Formal emancipation would be a matter of expediency. The legal confirmation 
of their new relationship. I think that's right. And if believing the gospel and following Jesus means that there are no corners of your life and no relationships that get to be free from his influence, then the horrors of slavery amongst the people of God were to be finished. All these horrible things, the, the, the savagery, the stealing, the kidnapping, the mistreatment, the violence, the abuse, it was over. It was over amongst the people of God. That much is very, very clear. So the first, the logic of the gospel leads to the end of slavery. Do you see it? I hope you do. Number two, the American church should have recognized the transatlantic slave trade for the evil that it was. In light of all that, they should have recognized it. Like, we have to grapple with this reality that as American Christians, we are part of a tradition that has missed this. From the moment that the entire, that entire people groups were defined as subhuman in order to justify their enslavement, all Christians should have known. And from the moment that Africans were stolen and taken into captivity forcibly, Christians should have known. And from the moment they witnessed the inhumane, vicious treatment of the slaves, Christians should have known. And from the moment that these ugly debates began about whether or not slave owners should evangelize their slaves because it might mean they'd have to be freed, Christians should have known. And yet they didn't. Or they did know. And they allowed other interests to crowd out what should have been one of the clearest tenets of their faith that this isn't what Christians do to people, to image bearers. And even many of the heroes of of the sort of American faith tradition, like many of the Puritans or uh, the evangelist George Whitfield or the pastor Jonathan Edwards, they owned slaves and they defended slavery. And that doesn't uh, nullify all the, the, the brilliant things that they had to say on other subjects, but it does uh, make it so that we, we, we bristle a bit when we hear them. And especially so many black Christians, when we quote them sort of indiscriminately, feel this tinge of, wow, we're glossing over something truly tragic that these leaders embraced. Um, and the sad reality, the incredibly sad reality is that Christians in this period of American history that we're talking about, were largely either actively participating or quietly complicit with a particularly brutal and inhumane form of slavery for much of that time. And this does not negate, we have to be very clear here, this does not negate the vital and actually central role that Christians played in the abolition of slavery eventually. That is all very true. And I'm guessing most of us have heard a lot about that. Um, That's part of our history too. But this is an unsavory part of the story that is very easily ignored or glossed over out of, as Josh talked about last week, shame or embarrassment or whatever else. 
but it must be acknowledged because it goes a long way to explain why the church is still so segregated today. Christians of all races are suffering the consequences of our slavery and for that matter, our Jim Crow justifying forebears. Things could have and should have gone differently for the people of God in that period of history. They could have and they should have, but they didn't. So that leads me to point number three, is that we carry this history with work to do. And very simply, I just want to say a couple of things. We can begin, number one, by learning and by acknowledging and by lamenting the sin of American slavery and its generational effects that have cascaded down to us. Just to learn about it, to acknowledge it, to lament it is a great starting place. Number two, we can ask God to search us and to reveal the sinful corners of our hearts that touch these issues that we might confess and repent and move forward. I challenge you to do that. But then our fourth point is third was that we carry this history with work to do, but our fourth is that we carry this history with the grace of God as well. Remember that we serve a God who became a slave on our behalf to save us. Hear the words of Philippians 2, 5 through 11, hopefully with a fresh lens right now. It says, Paul wrote, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May we cling to his death on our behalf, the only means by which we can have our sins forgiven. And may we let that grace and that mercy and that love and that forgiveness drive us to humble ourselves as he did, the king who took on the form of a slave to come and suffer alongside us, identify with us, and save us. May we let that drive us to humble ourselves that same way as he did so we could courageously move forward with love and service and speech proclamation about the King Jesus who promises a better way, even when we fail to live it out, even when our history is checkered and ugly, he promises a better way. May we live into it with boldness because of his grace, but with the courage to look the past that we come from squarely in the eye. And may that give us resolve to live more faithfully today. Amen. Amen.